0: Field press towards Clayton, um, turn around. I was driving down i and turn around and see if I can find him again. This is that Glover's subject, you 1074, Quattron, I got NCJA 1014. 1011, every 11. 10
1: quarters to 11, 1205. NCJA 1014.
0: Hello, and welcome to the North Carolina Justice Academy 1014 podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. Today we're going into cold case investigation and have two of North Carolina's foremost instructors and soothsayers on cold case investigations. Our first guest from the North Carolina Justice Academy is Russell Strickland, who is an instructor and kind of specializes in investigations related courses. And Joe Kennedy, who's affiliated with the North Carolina Cold Case Coalition. Gentlemen, welcome, Joe. First of all, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the Cold Case Coalition. Never really knew that it existed. If you can kind of give us an overview about that.
2: Yeah, Kirk, we uh we kind of spawned out of the North Carolina Homicide Investigators Association. And uh, many of the listeners are probably aware that's and that's a a group that's been around since about 1994, uh specializing in training of homicide-related topics. Uh we used to look at cases at those conferences, you know, for agencies that would come and maybe have an un- unsolved case that they would want to maybe brainstorm get some ideas on. And from that, uh, kind of the idea spawned, well, let's do this a little bit more permanently. Let's put a little bit more, you know, uh, emphasis on, you know, reviewing cases to actually try to help uh, organizations or other agencies get cases solved. So uh, about three years ago, we were able to bring that to fruition uh, through a nonprofit status uh, got a couple of corporate sponsors up in the middle part of the state in the Greensboro area to give us a facility, access to a facility where we could actually house uh, some retired investigators, retired detectives to look at cases. Um, and from there, what we've done is we've created our coalition, which the uniqueness of it is not only do we have retired investigators, but we also have current active investigators or instructors like Russell involved in the process. So as I like to say it, we've got the young, talented smart guys that come beside us old dinosaurs and hopefully those two sets of eyes that we're able to see some things and maybe make some suggestions to those agencies and get some cases you know over the hump get them solved.
0: Well Joe what's your background how did you get involved in this?
2: You know I've been involved in in cold cases for gosh over 25 years. Uh, I'm a retired NCIS agent I retired out of Campbell's Union as the agent in charge in 2014. Um, with NCIS, I, I created our cold case squad there back in 1995. So I've been intimately involved with cold cases for you know about 25 years now. Um, and so when I did retire, you know it was kind of feeling you know f- uh, fulfilling for me what I've just been doing you know before retirement and, and continuing it on. So um, we actually did some cold case classes here at the Justice Academy back in 2000. You know uh, where we had the first cold case class here Uh, we brought in some uh, cold case detectives from the Netherlands and Germany and actually hosted the first cold case class here through the with the Justice Academy's support and assistance uh, back then so I've been intimately involved with it you know for quite a few years.
0: So safe to say that you have probably taken your expertise well beyond the Justice Academy tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well what what I you know, anything that I bring to the table I've learned from another detective or another investigator. The unique quality that I probably have as I've investigated, uh, you know, homicides around the world. So I was able to get some, you know, different perspectives, whether it was in Europe or the Japanese National Police or the Philippine National Police or the Brazilian Federal Police, you know, whoever that might be. Um, so I think that's probably what I'm able to bring to the table is just perspectives of other investigators, you know, seeing it around the world.
0: Right, And is it kind of a two-way street, too? So obviously you go in to an agency or a community or an area to talk about, your levels of expertise but do you find sometimes that you bring some stuff back with you from from other agencies and other investigators? Oh
2: absolutely I think uh, you know when you're not doing that you're not learning you know and I don't care how many cases you've worked I don't know how many cases you've solved you know there's always those cases that need attention that haven't been solved and so uh, learning is just for me I'm a lifelong learner and that's part of it's why I love the Justice Academy so much and what it brings to the table Um, you know when we were first putting this together uh, one of the critical components to me was involving the Justice Academy, and having worked with Russell through the uh, North Carolina Homicide Investigator Association, you know, I knew he was—he's top shelf instructor. I mean, they don't get any better than him. He knows his stuff, and uh, and and he's got a lot of contacts and resources. So. I'll give you that twenty
0: dollars. Uh, well, yeah, Somehow but, I knew uh, that was coming.
2: But it, but Russell, <laughs> you know, it's true, and that's the thing, uh, uh, Kirk, that a lot of people don't realize is the folks in our coalition or some really experienced folks on one end and very, very sharp folks on the other end. So if maybe they're lacking a little bit in terms of of the number of cases they've done, they make up for it in other areas, you know, in in just their, I hate to say it, but how smart they are, how unique things that they bring to the table. And, you know, at our last meeting, I'll give you an an example. We had, uh, you know, several different police departments represented in agencies um, and, we were able to sit and talk and help through a department basically take a case that they had thought was a no-hoper and now they've got a little bit of hope in it you know in terms of of tracking down some leads so again it's a it's a great to me it's a perfect marriage because i think the ideal cold case team or unit is an older detective and a younger detective you know because that synergy what that what that brings is you know the full package at least to me
0: well, let's talk to that younger detective, if we will, for just a moment, Russell Strickland, who is an <laughs> instructor younger. at the North Carolina Justice Academy. Russell, let's talk a little bit about your involvement. First of all, some about your background, what brought you to the academy, and then let's kind of ease over into how you and Joe managed to get together. I started the academy in
1: 2013. Uh, I'm from eastern North Carolina, and I've worked for a couple of different agencies over here for my law enforcement career. Uh, I am still sworn with a local agency, which kind of helps uh, a lot of agencies that are working current cases, they, they are, they're hesitant about reaching out to folks on the academic side that are not sworn um, because of the sensitivity and the confidentiality of those cases. So, keeping my sworn status has helped kind of relieve some of that anxiety, I think, with agencies. But uh, when I started here, um, I got involved, uh, as most Justice Academy instructors, depending on their, their topic. Uh, there's associations and conferences affiliated with that, that area. Uh, and for me, it was the Homicide Investigator Association. And so when I started in 2013, I got involved with that, that group, uh, and I'm now the vice president of that uh, association. We run two conferences a year. Uh, we run one in the fall at Carolina Beach uh, at the Marriott, and we run one, it's currently, it's in Hickory uh, in, in the spring of the year to try to service both ends of the state and it's a good conference, and I know. Obviously, I'm a little biased uh, being associated with them, but you know, I, I didn't start out as a board member. I started out coordinating it as an academy instructor, and seeing oh, how 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 great a conference they put together, and and I wanted to be a part of that, uh, and I thought I could bring something to it, and and uh, you know, I, I joined the board, and and we hadn't looked back, and uh, conference has grown every year, and as Joe said, the coalition. Started from the from the association um, But when you look at even the history of the Homicide Investigators Association that started out uh, Not as a conference it started out as meetings of investigators to talk about active cases Uh, and it it was some some SBI agents and uh, some smaller and larger size agencies would get together a couple times a year and Tell you what are trends that you're seeing and this is what we're dealing with and challenges and uh, from that it kind of spawned a uh, training conference and 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 it, it, it grew from there uh, and, and I'm, I met Joe when I came to the academy you know he runs he and he continues to run the cold case co- course through us uh, as a vendor uh, and it's a it's a very well very well received course uh, and you know as far as the coalition goes uh, my my friendship and relationship with Joe he asked me to be a part of it and one of, one of the things about being an instructor is my, my experience as far as working cases stops the day that I walk in here. You know, I'm not working cases anymore. Uh, and there's definitely a shelf life to your relevance if you don't stay on top of, of, of uh, your, your area of expertise, if you will. So uh, on the academic side, it was a complete shift from, from the law enforcement side for me. Um, I was teaching a lot before I started here, but uh, it, it's completely different and how that changes uh, your experiences. And you are able to drill down from a research perspective and get very, a very fine point on things, but you do. You don't, you don't get the ability to work cases anymore. So working with the Homicide Investigators Association and, and then getting to, to still actively work cases from, from a coalition perspective has been has been a, made me a better instructor. Uh, and I think the teaching side has made me better uh, in the coalition. Uh, and you know, the what the coalition's trying to do um, is, for some, sometimes it's just affirmation for an agency that hey, you know, you've done everything you can do. We've had we've had agencies come in and they present a case to us, and at the end of it, I mean, you've got a group of very experienced folks in the room, and it's kind of hey, man, you you've you've done. You've done everything you can, uh, and and from here, unless unless some some miracle happens and, and you get some phone call of a, a tip, uh, there's very little investigatively that you can do. Uh, so sometimes that affirmation for an agency is important. Uh,
0: but that that's 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 basically my involvement. Well, I don't want to leave anything to the imagination of some folks that may be listening. So I'm going to try to rewind just a little bit and and let's talk about Joe the definition of a cold case. What what makes a case cold to an agency? When do you when do you put that stamp on it and go it's a cold case? Yeah there's a couple of, of
2: parameters nationally when you rec- when do you recognize a case as a cold case and typically that is that the case is over a year old or the case has been handed off from the initial detective to say, a second detective, maybe because of a transfer or a retirement or what have you. Uh, that's typically, the, the, the you know, the definition of a cold case.
0: All right. So from the coalition's standpoint, let's kind of get more into the logistics of that. And uh, if I'm a police chief or a sheriff or a captain over criminal investigations division, how do uh, go about bringing the coalition in to, to help us to maybe get that affirmation that Russell was talking about? How, do, how does all that begin?
2: Yeah, what we do is uh, we have a website. It's uh, coldcasecoalition.org. Um, there's a drop-down menu in there that has a icon for a case submission. Now in that all we're asking for is is that the organization or the agency would go in and just fill that in, you know, a point of contact for them. An email address a telephone number then one of the coalition members will reach out to them and what we will do is we we have some really strong parameters that we go by first of all we we operate in anonymity because we don't want any credit uh, and we also don't want to try to tell an agency how to do a case right we're there support totally as a support mechanism so what we will do is we'll reach out to them, we'll say, okay, hey, we'll, we will cooperate with you, bring your case forward, but again, we don't want you to acknowledge us in you know publicly or anything because, again, a lot of us, we've had our day in the sun, right? Um, and so what we wanna do is help you get that case solved. Uh, we do sign a nondisclosure agreement uh, with the respective agency. Share, every member that looks at that case, hey, we're not gonna share this, just we're an extension of your law enforcement agency. And every to be a member of our coalition, you have to be a retired local, state, or federal. We do have a couple of college professors that have been vetted uh, in the community, in the, in the criminal justice community, that don't meet that parameter, but they are doing other stuff, i.e. they have taught for law enforcement agencies. They've been, in, you know, intimately involved. So um, we respect that brotherhood, you know, that we all, because, you know, just because you retire, you don't leave the brotherhood, as you know, Kirk premier your days uh, in law enforcement. Um, but that's kind of what we do um, in terms of that agreement. And, you know, we are it's a very, I think Russell will tell you, it's not, it's a very serious, I try to make it very serious because what we want to do is we don't want to waste anybody's time. Uh, we used to would have a quarterly meeting where we would have an agency bring a case forward, start about 9 o'clock in the morning. They would bring all the crime scene photographs, the autopsy, a complete case file. And we would brainstorm that. They would present the case to us and we would brainstorm and come up with ideas. And Russell actually was kind of one of the first to 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 say, you know, this is good, but we probably need a little bit to be front loaded a little bit more. So that's what we've tried to do in the last case that we've taken on is, okay, let us give us all the materials, let us digest that before we actually have that meeting. And that seems to work a little better. Um, but that's kind of the dynamic that goes on there. Uh, we will come and meet with the agency if, if they want us to do that. Uh, we're blessed right now that we have a corporate sponsor up in uh, the Greensboro area who uh, has office space that they've given us. So we, we meet there, and we do have, uh, you know, weekly, there's typically somebody in there helping an agency on a case or at least looking at an old case because, um, you know, we have we have a backlog right now of cases, folks, you know, wanting us to help them out. So... Uh, we've got a couple of retired guys that go in there every day. I got one guy that goes in there almost every day and just is looking through the cases to come up with new ideas, that kind of thing. So um, funding is another thing, uh, Kirk, that we we have a couple of agencies. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. We had the city of Nags Head came to us about a year ago, and they needed some funding for some DNA testing, some new enhanced DNA testing with a, with a evidence collection of a system known as the MVAC. Uh, In the state, I think New Hanover County's got an MVAC, Brunswick County, uh, Guilford County, there's about five or six MVACs in the state. But, uh, you know, they were looking for a resource. And so what we were able to do is get that corporate sponsor to basically fund that, you know, that testing. Uh, So that's another thing that we're able to do in addition to brainstorming cases. We also, in some instances, were able to generate some revenue for the department, you know, some of the smaller departments that maybe don't have that money.
0: So when the when the coalition looks at these cases and say for instance Joe's sitting at the table and he goes, have you wonder if they've thought about this? How do you communicate that back to the agency when when you see some things that maybe are not included in the report, maybe some things that just haven't been fully developed? How does how does that information get back to the agency? Yeah. That's a good question. And
2: what we what we did from our very first case is we came up with a nine-page document. And it deals, you know, it sets out basically, it breaks down a homicide file, you know, in terms of the crime scene photos, the autopsy report, witness interviews, et cetera. And so every participant that's sitting there when the detectives come in and present the case has that nine-page document that they make notes and suggestions. So when the detectives leave, we don't keep that. We hand them those lists to say, hey, here's all the ideas that were generated from these folks sitting in the room. And then what we try to do is from that point forward, we try to designate an investigator detective to follow up with them. And so that there's a follow up. I'll give you a case in point. Uh, Russell hosted last June. So mm-hmm. about uh, about 14 months ago mm-hmm. now. He hosted the June meeting here at the academy for us. And so we ironically had a detective from Virginia that came down. I got an email from her the day before yesterday saying, look, I have got a viable lead in my case now, and I need to come back and, and oh, by the way, do you have that one detective's name I was talking to? Because he gave me his number, and I'm not sure where I put it, and I got his name. So that's a case in point where she's got a very good lead now on her case and thinks that it's – she says, hey, this is going to be significant. She says, I want to call you. Um, and so that's just case in point. And so now I'm I'm working to marry her and that detective up um, to get them back together. So, right.
0: so let's let's talk about the success rate for just a moment, right. and how and Russell, I'll kind of turn this back over to you as a coalition member, a guy who's who's in there working it. What's the success rate been? How how successful has it been?
1: Well, uh, I'll answer that. Want to, to kind of bounce off the thing Joe said is okay. is the lack of ego. I think from the perspective of the members of the coalition in addition to the agency is an important part about about what we do and and Joe Joe mentioned that we don't we don't we're not looking for I mean this podcast is about as public as as it's as it can get but about as public as we ever want it we want agencies to know about it but it's not something we want plastered all over television and we don't and and for that um, the lack of ego is going to determine what we get back in these presentations it's really easy to go in with an agency brings a case and say you should have done this and you should have done that and point your finger and 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 most of the time in these cases the investigators that are bringing them in are not the original detectives that worked it for you know as joe explained earlier so there's there's certain things you can't get back crime scene initial witness interviews it's it's done you know we can't we can't redo that um so, you know, you have to be very careful how, how, how you treat the, the folks that have, have, that have come before you um, and try to give them investigative strategies that they can take back and go, hey, here's some things that we got out of this meeting and, and some things we need to do. Um, but we don't, we, don't, we don't talk about success rate, honestly, and for the same reason. We, we don't – if an agency presents a case to us and then they go back and solve that agency, they did that. We didn't do that. We didn't do the interviews. We didn't, we didn't submit that evidence for further testing. They did. So that's, that's their win, not ours. We just try to be a tool
0: for the organization to, to, to bounce ideas off of. Well, which I think is, is a tremendous asset that you don't kind of score keep yeah. to, to say that uh, in a different sort of way that you've already said. But I think statistically, Joe, there's probably some numbers out there that would lead some of the folks who are listening to go, "Holy cow! I had no idea there were that many homicides in North Carolina in a particular year." So let's let's kind of get into the numbers game for just a moment. Yeah,
2: so let's let's think about it this way, Kirk. Um, there's over 280,000 unsolved murders in the United States. That's a huge number. Resolution rate for homicides in the 1960s was about 90 percent today the national average is about 59 percent now in North Carolina we're not that low and I think it's for two reasons that we we don't have a, a you know and and I think most people will put our resolution rate in the high 70s from mm-hmm. for, for most departments across the board it's, it's somewhere about 75 percent and that's because of the training here at the Academy okay there's dedicated training and the North Carolina Homicide Investigator Association. That's an extension, you know, and the academies are intimately involved in. Those two things, we have a, we don't, so we don't, we're not at a 59% with the rest of the country, but we are ninth in the nation in homicides. A lot of people don't realize that. We have just, uh, if you look at across the board, the country peaked in homicides 1993, 1994 at about 24,000, just short of 24,000. Last year, we're just north of 17,000 we have just north of somewhere between five and 600, 620 homicides a year in the state. Um, When you look at it, you know, the numbers, I don't know that a research project's ever been undertaken to determine the number we got in the state, but when you look at across the board, uh, 280, you know, we're ninth in the state, so I guess we got a percent, you know, Mm -hmm. ninth in the country, so we got a percentage of that, but there's no shortage of cold cases um, Monday. Um, I was down in, in uh, uh, and I don't think they would mind me saying this, the city of Concord. had uh, two detectives, they have a double homicide, I met with them, uh, they said, look, we'd like to bring case to the coalition, and I looked at it, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really planned murder. I mean, a significant murder of a, of a wife and a, and a homeless guy, and it's fabricated, you know, it's all, a, it's, it's what we call staging in a scene. But uh, they've come to us and they said, "Hey, will you just you know give us this, another set of eyes? Will you look at this?" And I said, "Sure, absolutely." So that's one that you know is coming down the pipeline. Again, I, I hope I'm not talking out of school here, and I don't think they would they would mind that. But uh, but that's what we try to do is is when when we get called on a case, Kurt, you know, we were anybody that called initially would just say, "Okay, hey, we'll take a look at it." Now we're having to kind of be selective, honestly, because you know we we. And, and that doesn't I mean we're not trying to cherry pick a case or say, oh, we don't think that case can. Not, not that at all. It's just that uh, what we try to do, and we try to be righteous. We try to not just concentrate in one part of the state. You know, we try to, you know, from I, I, as I like to say it, from Murphy to Manio. You know, you're going from the mountains to, you know, can we make sure we're getting, you know, those departments involved? So we've not had any repeats of, you know, an agency coming and presenting because in our quarterly meetings, you know, that's a that's one day set aside just for. You know, we already sat down for, you know, five, six hours, and we're just looking at that case.
0: Right. So can you be maybe just a little bit more specific? I know we've kind of danced around yeah. it just a tad. But when you open these cases for the first time, mm-hmm. and you mentioned the nine-page document that your guys go through, right. are there any specific things that you are looking for are you looking for um, – Missed photographs, missed witnesses, uh, interviews, things like that, or do you just kind of give it the broad perspective?
2: Well, I think you know Russell. I think he would agree with this. It it just depends on the case. Mm -hmm. You know, you can look at some cases. You know, we looked at we looked at a case. You know, at our last meeting, I I don't. I I think Russell may have not been able to to make that because he had a a, an instructor requirement, but. uh, you know that was a that was a bizarre murder. It was just weird, and so everybody in the room, we're even scratching our heads, going, "Hmm, not not quite sure here," you know, from from some of the forensics of, of what was what was actually what was the real, you know, uh, 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 manner of death. You know what was going on here, and um, so I, I think when when we look at a case, what we're after is uh, like any case, you do have sometimes the case will speak to you and i know this sounds silly but some files will talk to you like you'll read it you know i'll give you another example in one case that we we had that was presented at the coalition uh one of the investigators immediately starts getting on the fact that hey this is your suspect you know the initial investigators kind of overlooked them you know kind of was like well he is a suspect but no based on these four or five reasons i think he's a much stronger suspect than some of the other suspects in your file um pictures Crime scene videos will contain things that were overlooked simply because when those were taken, you know, when a a murder happens, it's chaos. I call it control chaos. So, you know, everybody's got a function and you're trying to get a job done, right? Interview witnesses, get to the autopsy, go to the hospital, you know, recover evidence, et cetera. And so sometimes we don't go back and look at those files because scenes will talk to you if you will allow them. They'll tell you not only from a behavioral standpoint you know or doing behavioral analysis on okay is it a left is it a right-handed killer you know the, what was the control of the victim what was the level of force need you know used by the offender a lot of different things but um so i guess to answer your question i'm kind of going around and around here it, it just depends on the cases but what we're looking for is is something overlooked is there some new technology that can be added to that case you know, in terms of forensics, DNA. Um, the explosion with forensic genealogy is just, I'm, I mean, Russell and I, all of us, still trying to get our arms Absolutely. wrapped around that. You know, what it, what's really going on here, you know, in terms of, and then the amount of DNA, I want you to think of it like this. There's a lot of cold cases sitting in vaults right now where the SBI did the initial analysis on the, on the DNA, and perhaps it was a mixed stain. Okay, so you had a, a primary and a secondary contributor. You know, maybe it's the victim and the suspect, and there was not enough of a, a genome profile to get a to get a positive DNA match. But with low level DNA now today, it's unbelievable because when we think of what low level DNA is, a lot of and I try to use this analogy a lot. There's fifty eight thousand uh, nanograms in one granular of salt. So now DNA analysis is looking at about twenty nanograms to make a hit. Think of that. I mean, 58,000 nanograms, one granular assault, we only need 20 nanograms. Now, that technology didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. So there are cold cases even sitting in our, in our police and sheriff's department offices or sheriff's offices that maybe DNA was done and re-examined. Maybe the case is 20 years old and 10 years ago they sent it to the lab and they said, no, we still didn't get enough of a profile, but today we would actually get a profile.
0: So, Joe, you use that term, forensic genealogy. It's new in my vocabulary, and I dare say some of the folks that are listening may have heard it, don't completely understand it. Can you give us a Webster's version definition?
2: Okay, so let's think about the Golden State Killer because that's where forensic genealogy, that's where most of the nation, where most investigators are familiar with the case, they kind of got forensic genealogy on the map. Um, When we talk forensic genealogy, when we're looking for DNA, through the criminal justice system, everyone is familiar with the term CODIS, right? So we're trying to get a DNA hit through going through CODIS. CODIS only has about 18 million samples in it. So when you think, the, the, the country's 330 million people. So when we're, you know, take a, we take some DNA from a crime scene and then we're putting it into CODIS, that's only given us a chance of matching it to 18 million people. What forensic genealogy does is it allows you to use publicly accessed databases, i.e. 23andMe, Ancestry.com, a little com- a little company called GEDmatch, Family Tree DNA. So those are the four primary companies. And when you think of how many people have dumped their DNA into those systems, it maps about 60% of the United States. So now our DNA can be, a, not only those 18 million people that are in CODIS, but Basically, over 150, 170 million people is probably beyond that at this point. So when we talk about forensic genealogy, what I like to do is I like to get an expert involved, and that is an expert that has ties to the state, ironically. And she wrote the book, Forensic Genealogy. Her name is Colleen Fitzpatrick. She has done a lot of work for us at the coalition. I, I'm almost in weekly contact with her. And she uh, was a Duke uh, undergrad and is a nuclear physicist from Duke. And spent some, t- and, and then lived in the Research Triangle Park for about four or five years after you know her college education. Uh, she lives in California now, but she is basically the coalition's expert on forensic genealogy. And so again, when we think of it in terms, it's just basically we're looking for the ancestry, your, your ancestry. Now maybe the suspect didn't put their DNA, send it to 23andMe or Ancestry.com, but maybe their second or third cousin did. That's all we really need because then we're able to map and it's amazing the advances in in dna with just those simple you know you see it on almost i mean think of how many commercials you see weekly where they're trying to you know get you to send you know send a buccal swab up and we're going to tell you you know what part of the world you're from and you know who your relatives are but um that's a system that would allow law enforcement about 60 percent of the nation to be accessed as opposed to only 18 million people in codis um, there's been about, since Golden State Killer, there's been roughly about 70 cases. Interestingly, you mentioned a little earlier that we only look at homicides. So, one of the departments that has done some tremendous work with forensic genealogy on some of their past sexual assault cases is the city of Fayetteville and Lieutenant John Summerendike. He is, I can't tell you the, the work they've done out there. They've got a couple of serial rapists off the street. Um, he's made some advancements, and that's through the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. But they're all cold cases that he's went back. And, again, one I think one predator, they had 11 victims in the city of Fayetteville, and he was using strictly uh, forensic genealogy to do that. Right.
0: And, Russell, I think you've done some research with some other types of DNA that you could just well, talk about.
1: W- one of the concerns in in the law enforcement community and and it's slowly starting to trickle down to the law enforcement side, but, but in, in the, more in the academic side, one of the things that, that we are concerned about as, as practitioners and educators about this stuff is, is the, the challenges with DNA. You know, there was a time when you had to have a blood sample uh, in order to get DNA. And, and as the, the technology, without going way well off in the weeds with that, but as that technology is advanced, and as, as Joe said, the amount of sample that is required now in order to compare to, to an unknown or to a person that we have as a known sample has gotten smaller and smaller. So, uh, you know, everybody's familiar or probably most people are familiar with the term touch DNA. So, you know, it's not uh, a bodily fluid necessarily anymore. It's I touch a surface and I leave behind DNA on that surface. We can swab that surface, analyze that, and and many times get a DNA sample. Well, one of the challenges or the downsides to the advancement in that technology is that it's almost become too sensitive. I mean, that, that's really where we are. And, and you run into some issues now where, let's say it's not a body fluid sample, let's say it's a touch DNA sample. And, and can you necessarily say that that person touched that surface? And, and, and an anecdotal example is I shake your hand, your DNA gets transferred from your hand to mine. And then I go touch that doorknob as I'm leaving the door, leaving this room. I leave your DNA behind, or, 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 the there's a possibility I could leave your DNA behind on a surface that you never touched. So, you know, the the, the foundational principle in, in all crime scene investigation is is low cards exchange principle. And and, and I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says every time we go into a place, we both leave something behind and we take something with us. We're we're exchanging evidence, uh, if you will, in 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 every every place that we go and one of the ways in which we use DNA, uh, at it's most basic is to say a person was in this place, a person was, in, was near this person, near this thing because they touched it and we found their DNA. But when you, when you get to a point with the sensitivity of DNA where it is now, where can you really say that that DNA got there because that person was there, you, you've gotta start thinking about how do, we, how do we work cases when not the credibility of the science, it is in question because it's not. It's 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 a question of the sensitivity of it is 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 so good um, that we're going to start getting challenges on some of these things in court with uh, touch DNA specifically and and New Scotland Yard you know Joe Joe talks about it all the time is is doing a study where where do we go after DNA because if it gets to a point in 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 the court system in the U S where it's challenged to the point where we, we have to start questioning, yes, I got a sample of DNA from, from this scene that matches my suspect, but does that necessarily mean that person was in that place? How could that DNA have been transferred? Uh, and it, it makes you question, where do, we, where do we go from here? And my answer to that is, is it's, it's the basics. And I, I know I've already said that previously, but you know, old school detective work getting out of your office, getting out of your car, and talking to people. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, we've found no replacement for that yet. Uh, and, and I think that's where we are, and, and, and that's some of the challenges that we face. And, and this has already started to show up in some court cases, and, and, and it's, it's going to be an issue for us in the future with DNA. Um,
2: yeah, if I could just add to what Russell's saying, um, I don't want to name the, the city, but I'm looking at a case right now where – um, DNA is it's a contentious issue as to where it could result in a conviction being overturned. And so as I look at it, to me, it's contaminated DNA, mm-hmm. okay? It's secondary transfer. Now, that contamination can occur at a lot of different places. It could be at the crime scene, right? Uh, think of cold cases years ago. You could have contaminated. It could be at the autopsy room. It could be at the state lab. Okay, if some advanced DNA testing, okay, they didn't rely on the state. They went to some private lab. So there's a lot of different places that we're seeing now where contamination or secondary transfer is a, is a real concern. And so I like to say this, uh, uh, Russell and I talk about this, but I think, I think DNA is very dangerous right now. Because yeah, it's, it can be the silver bullet that solves a case, but it also, what's coming out more and more now is some of these contamination issues. But Russell hit the nail on the head. You know, he and I, we chuckle sometimes because it really comes down to the basics. That neighborhood canvas, I know he he drills that down in his fundamentals in investigative process class because I got detectives that'll say, yeah, you know, is it really that yes. yes, what'd Russell tell you in the class? Yeah, what he said? listen to him because that's where it comes down is you know how and why equals who right at a scene and so that old gumshoe detective work that Russell's alluded to that's what we're missing today and that's what you know we try to stress too in some of these reviews is hey let's take that old case let's go back from day one and let's incorporate those gumshoe detective principles into the case and see if we can't get it over the hump.
0: We've also talked a lot about homicides and the cold case there are there other cases that exist that are not homicide-related.
1: One of the cases that we reviewed, um, and, and not to name the agency, but uh, the, the detectives that were assigned a case now presented a case to us, and it was believed by the initial investigators that, that it was a homicide. Um, the, the basic story was husband comes in, finds his wife is deceased, a gunshot wound, and based on the history with uh, the, the, the gentleman that was the suspect and, and also with the deceased, um, it was treated very early on as if as if it were a homicide and you fast forward that case that had been changed hands multiple times through investigators uh, over I don't remember that was seven ten-year-old case mm-hmm. uh, and they brought it to us and and at the end of the day we we analyzed the case and it wasn't a homicide it was it was a suicide which is what the what the complainant the guy that the reporting person initially said when when law enforcement went out and um, one of the problems, and I talk about this, this type of stuff in, in a lot of the classes that I teach, is the volume of information. I don't think, I don't think the public realizes the amount of data that comes in in a homicide, investor, just a, a, a general co case, regular homicide case, um, and sorting through that and, and limits on, on human's cognitive ability and processing large amounts of data and being able to see how those things interconnect is 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 almost impossible. Uh, so you know you, you've heard the old adage, you can't see the forest for the trees. But you know, and, and you, you've got some very simple, not homicides, but some simple cases that detectives works where there's, you know, you can put it in a file folder, you know, that entire case file. But when you get into homicide investigation, you're talking about bankers' boxes full of full of stuff, full of witness interviews. And you know there may have been a hundred witness interviews done in a neighborhood canvas surrounding where an incident took place, and sorting through all that information and picking out one little key phrase that somebody said, you, you think about how hard that is. It's, it, I mean, you talk about needle in a haystack. And what we find is that most of the time the information is already in that case file that's going to solve that case. Um, now, now, you know, again, we're, we're generalizing here, but you, you find that the wit- there's, there's a witness in there that saw something, that, and that piece of paper has been overlooked. Uh, it slips underneath the bottom of the box, and there it is sitting for 15 years. Um, you know, Joe talks about the, the viability of, of evidence that was collected at the initial scene, and then technology keeps trucking along, and, and now we're able to do some things that, that we were not able to do when that case was, was current and active. Um, so just sorting through data, and, and I am, and Joe as well, is a big fan of the team approach to working cases. And, and the, the challenge with law enforcement, and this is nationwide, is that it's, it's a one-man show. It's, you as a detective are assigned your cases, and they're generally your responsibility. Now, when that case is hot and you're, you're at that initial scene, you've got a lot of help. You've got patrol officers on scene, you've got supervisors, you've got crime scene and forensics folks, you've got other investigators that are helping you work that case. But there's gonna come to a point where you're it, you're the guy, you're the person. Um, and it's difficult to see it all at once. And, and one of the things that we're a big fan of, and I think the coalition supports, is having a group of people that are that are reviewing a case. So the team approach to work in investigations, generally, is gonna make you less likely to miss those things. Uh, so, and and the coalition kind of supports that because now we've got fifteen twenty people that are all looking at the same data with different backgrounds, with different experiences and experience levels, and you're able to pick out things. It's it's a it's it's kind of beautiful to watch if you could be a fly on the wall in some of these, because you know he was talking about some of the folks with more of an academic background, and, and generally speaking, what we see those those folks tend to fall more on the forensic side, uh, they're civilian non sworn, um, but you know, things that you hadn't even considered, and, and they're experts in it. I mean, the, the science of working these cases is so vast. You know, the whole uh, CSI that you see on TV of the, the detective that's an expert in forensic genealogy, but he's also a geologist, mm-hmm. and he, you know, it, it just, it doesn't fly. Uh, what makes you a good investigator is not being an expert at everything. It's knowing who to call at three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. to get that resource on station that can help us, and, and trying to keep the ego out of it. And the ego. Unfortunately, we're all alphas in law enforcement. You know, we we tend to. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be wrong, and I don't want to ask for help. And you got to realize it's not about you; it's about the case. And
0: and I think for some folks that 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 can be a challenge. So, right. so uh, obviously, there's a lot of information that that we brought out here. I want to kind of focus in on the academy's standpoint and the relationship with the coalition. How are you able? To take, and I think you touched on it briefly when we first started, but I just kind of want to get back into it again. How are you able to bring information from the coalition and, and what the coalition has done for you into the classroom?
1: Well that, that's that's kind of a multi-phase answer. Um, one of the things to, to touch on something Joe mentioned earlier, the Justice Academy is unique in the nation, and and I think before I I, I came to work here as a staff member, we in North Carolina and, and I was just guilty of this, we, we take it for granted the quality and the amount of free training that we get. And, and I would say this if I was not a staff member and I was not on a mic. I mean, um, you know, my involvement in doing some things out of state, you realize that the training that we get for free uh, that costs the agency basically travel expenses, uh, the housing that we, we provide uh, and the training that we provide, would cost an agency so let's let's say you're a police chief at an agency and you, you pick a town in another state and I decided I wanted to get a couple of officers trained on say a, a basic homicide course a five-day uh, homicide course that's gonna cost you about a grand plus plus housing plus travel for that officer uh, because you're gonna have to reach out to a vendor or a, a contractor to bring that training in and I think the the availability of the training uh, in North Carolina uh, and the and and low cost encourages agencies to, to be more willing to send their folks to classes. Because I mean you think about it, if, you, if you're a say and, and most agencies are smaller across the country. I mean yeah you got your you got your Raleigh PDs and your Fayettevilles but a lot of what you've got is 25 man around that departments and their, their, their training budgets are small. So you look at okay how can I, both, how can I maximize my dollar Right, so I'm going to send, instead of sending four detectives to this class, I could only afford to send one if I had to pay. So, you know, I, I, I think uh, the, the the Justice Academy is a tremendous resource for law enforcement. And I think uh, when I talk about what I do in other states, they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine how nice that would be if we had that, had that resource available. Um, but I usually get more out of the classes that I teach than probably my students do. I always make that joke. But, it, you know, I, I we, my, the, my teaching style is, is, is group kind of group discussion. I feel like I've done my job If I can shut up and you know, this guy from Hendersonville can talk about how he does it and this guy from Charlotte can talk about how he does it and, and, and we can the, the students seem to get more out of it that way. And, and I learn a lot and, and you know of course, it's a, being that I'm doing this full time, I have the time and the ability. To, to do my own research and, and, and studying trends and what's going on and, and that makes me makes me better at the job. But, you know, the I mean I've got I've got kind of the, the best case scenario. I have, you know, the students that are in my classes um, that are that are keeping everybody up to date and, and I'm educating them on things that I've learned. The the North Carolina Homicide Investigators Association, I mean we're we bring in case investigations. I mean we're always the, the board members were always keeping an eye on, hey, you know this case in you know, Raleigh, that just went to trial, let's try to get them in to present. And they'll talk about the, the things that worked well and the things that didn't, uh, and we learn from that. And, and from f- the basics is the problem. Uh, you, you asked what I learned most from the coalition, it reinforces kind of what I already thought, is that when investigations fall apart, whether it's a homicide or an armed robbery or whatever, it tends not to be the high-speed, low-drag stuff that we do. It tends to be improper evidence collection. It tends to be how, how, how was it, um, uh, the, the interview and interrogation issues, not, not doing neighborhood canvases. You know, the technology's advanced in, you know, I started in, in 2000, and, and how we do it now versus how we did it then has changed really, really dramatically. But it's the most basic functions of police procedure that still matter the most. And when we're looking at these cold cases, those tend to be the areas where we find the issues. It's, man, it would be, you know, they took five photos of a homicide scene. You know, uh, and they, they should have, we see things in crime scene photos that should have been packaged. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not judging, especially these older cases, but um, the basics. we got, we got to get the
0: basics right. And if we don't, um, our cases are going to suffer because of it. Well, gentlemen, this has been an absolutely awesome discussion just to, to sit down and, and talk to two guys who are who are into this every day and just clinicians of uh, working cold cases. Joe, if you would, once again, if I'm a chief or a sheriff and I'm interested in, in getting your services full review, how do we get in touch with you? Yeah, reach out to our website. It is coldcasecoalition.org.
2: There's an email address on there. It is staff at coldcasecoalition.com. There's also a telephone number. Either way will work. Uh, Just give us a call. You know, hey, you have a case, you have an interest in the coalition, looking at it, and then we'll walk you
0: through what will need to be done. Okay, and and again, I just want to say, um, gosh, another unknown resource. In the state of North Carolina, had never heard about the Cold Case Coalition until now, and I'm guessing you're giving free plugs every time you teach a course at the Academy. Absolutely, <laughs> um, yeah, shamelessly. Uh, I talk about it in you know the, the
1: Coalition and also uh, the Homicide Investigator Association. Uh, it's it's good training, and you know it's the cheapest cheapest game in town. But you know, a lot a lot of folks don't realize it. Um, a lot of folks that even have been taking classes from the Academy for years, but in our original mandate. Uh, we're, we are to provide training but also technical assistance. That's part of, that's part of my job. You know, If it was Chad Thompson, the firearms instructor, his, his area of expertise is firearms. So you know, we are encouraged and if not required to provide that. So you know, cold case aside, one of the things that I, I, I push on my students is, hey, if you've got a case and you just want to fresh that eyes to take a look at it, I'm happy to do that, and and the academy, of course, supports and encourages us to do that as part of, as part of what we do. So, you know, if if, if they are interested, if it's a, a detective or an agency head or a supervisor, uh, of course, getting up with Joe, um, you know, we we can it, it, maybe it's a training issue, not necessarily a case that they're interested in. Um, you know, we can get Joe maybe involved with that agency and, and hosting a course for them where maybe they can get a few local agencies together we can put a class on they can fill it and, and they're all getting the same information at the same time from the same guy um, so they can contact either,
0: either Joe or myself and, and we'll be happy to try to help make that happen Good deal. Guys, thank you so much. Russell Strickland is an instructor on staff at the North Carolina Justice Academy in Salemburg, and Joe Kennedy, affiliated with the Cold Case Coalition here in North Carolina. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for taking your time and sharing this information with the law enforcement community in North Carolina. You've been listening to the North Carolina Justice Academy 1014 podcast. Remember, the Academy is here for you. Contact us with information or training-related issues that you'd like to discuss or maybe hear on future podcasts. In the meantime, stay safe.